Hi, Veggie Mates. Welcome back to the Veg Talk podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is episode number 84 with co founder of Agriculture Fairness Alliance, Laura Reese. Have you ever wondered about how things like subsidies and bailouts actually work in the world of farming? Who benefits and who doesn't? Are your food choices as vegan consumers actually making a difference in the world? Well, today we dive into these questions with our guest, Laura Reese. She is the co-founder of Agriculture Fairness Alliance and Liberation 360. Our conversation today is centered around the work AFA do. They are a lobbying organization dedicated to ending unfair subsidies and bailouts to animal agriculture and transitioning animal farmers to non-exploitative and sustainable businesses. Their work is incredibly important in making sure farmers can not only continue to operate, but also that they are able to contribute to a healthier environment and food system in the future. I hope you enjoy today's conversation and feel just as inspired as I am about the future of farming in the United States and around the world. Please check out their website and consider becoming a member. You can find them at afa.farm and donate as little as $1 a month to join. I'll catch you all on the other side to wrap things up. Enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here with Laura Reese from Agriculture Fairness Alliance uh, and also uh, Liberation 360. Uh, Very excited to have you on the show today, Laura, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. I'd love to hear just, you know, a little bit about your, your beginnings uh, now knowing the work you do and the importance it plays uh, in society, uh, we can we can get into that later. But I would I would really like to hear uh, just a little bit about your uh, your early beginnings with veganism and and basically how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it's kind of um, I, I kind of laugh that I'm a vegan now because um, well, I mean. I used to, you know, eat all the animal products. And I remember this morning, I was thinking about how I remembered telling someone ages ago that if I had one meal to plan before I died, it would be like filet mignon wafted over a flame and cambazola cheese and a glass of Amarone wine. And uh, (laughs) it's like, I can't believe that that was something I actually said once, probably 10 years ago, um, because that does not sound appealing to me now. Um, it all started in 2017. I did an elimination diet for my allergies. Um, people can't see me right now, but you can probably see that my nose is red. I've got terrible allergies. Um, so I did this elimination diet and I realized about a week into it that it was just plant-based. Like I just Googled elimination diet and it happened to be a plant-based diet that I think it recommended eating chicken like once a week. And I wasn't even doing that. And during this time, I, um, I happened upon a video from Nate Hagens from the Bottleneck Institute. And I think it was called Blind Spots and Superheroes, just randomly found it on Reddit. I think I was in the collapse subreddit because I was, I was already grieving over, um, over the fact that humanity is really we're an ecological overshoot and um, we're due for a crash and just thinking about like, how do we avoid that crash? Right. So this is before even thinking about agriculture. 
And I watched this video of Nate Hagen's, which is excellent, by the way. I think it was from 2014 Earth Day. And he showed the biomass of livestock, wild animals, and humans. And it was devastating to just contemplate those numbers. And it was instantly clear to me that one of the major areas where we're in overshoot is our breeding of livestock. It was something like the weight of all livestock on the planet is like three to four times that of humans. Um, if, so if you think we have a, a human overpopulation problem, I mean, just triple, quadruple that. Then I subsequently looked at a few scientific articles and I found that like the lowest estimates like two and a half and then the highest are like five, but you know, regardless, that's bad. But then the, the wildlife was like, what, 2%, 3% of the biomass? I mean, how are we going to survive that? Never mind the carbon emissions. And then you learn about the carbon emissions from especially the cattle industry. And, um, and you learn about how most of the food we're growing is not for humans. It's for the animals that we eat. Uh, and then we get milk from, and uh, it, it was kind of a quick couple of weeks of obsessing and just educating myself on, on facts like these uh, during the time I was doing this elimination diet. And at some point I just kind of realized, wait, okay, if we don't have to eat animals, what possible reason, and, rearing this number of animals is causing so much problem, so much of a problem. Like what justification could I possibly come up with for eating animals or eating dairy or eggs? Um, and I just, I couldn't, like, I would try to think of an argument and they, they just all fall, fall down right away, right? Like tradition, I mean, <laughs> a lot of traditions we've discarded because they're really um, unwise. And, you know, you think of, okay, taste. Okay, well, there are plenty of plant foods I like. And in fact, the reason why I like a lot of animal-based foods is for the spices I put on them, like gumbo. The gumbo spices are still the same. I can just make a plant-based gumbo. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my journey. Um, so it was like a course of a month that, uh, that my whole family, we were, um, we, we just started watching a bunch of documentaries and I didn't think my husband was really paying much attention, but my son and I were, were eagerly watching these documentaries. And then we were watching, um, Carnage Swallow the Past by Simon Amstel, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you watch it. It's a comedy. It's a mockumentary set in like 2046 where humanity is looking back on when we used to eat animals and they're reconciling that past and I mean it's it's hilarious the comedy is totally my cup of tea so I was laughing hard and then at the end of the the movie my son just said like we hadn't even talked I don't even think we had said the word vegan yet my son just said let's all go vegan and I was I was already thinking that like I had done the math in my head, like, oh my God, what's it gonna be mean like having to go out socially 
and be in that situation where everybody's looking at me because I'm not eating like they are, you know, like I, I'd been thinking about it. So my, my son said that. And then my husband, who I didn't even think was paying attention from the background, he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. And it's crazy because my husband's like the kind of guy who used to eat pork intestine porridge. Like he liked eating crazy, weird animal stuff. Um, but he just said, you know, it's a relief. Like I've always struggled with um, eating animals and I had no idea. Like you wouldn't think that from the guy who eats intestine porridge. But anyway, that was a long-winded explanation of the story. <laughs> the the take the takeaway for me there is how it can be surprising with the people that are clo- closest to you of their reactions to to something like watching Carnage or yeah or a documentary. Like you you're probably having these conversations with yourself in your head, and then your kid just goes, let's do it out of nowhere. Your husband agrees and you're like, no pushback. That's, uh, that's really surprising. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. So did you dive kind of, you know, head first into the world of veganism after making the switch or was there just, you know, a gradual learning period where you just continued to learn more and more and you felt compelled to, to now, you know, go on the journey that you're on? I would say I spent about a month or, well, we spent about a month, you know, figuring out all the new recipes like chickpea, the sea instead of chicken salad and stuff like that. And during that month, um, I was pretty obsessed with learning about the environmental impact of, of agriculture, especially animal agriculture. Cause that's the main one. Um, including soil mismanagement, growing the industrial feed crops for animals, just to be clear, it's the whole thing. And um, I would say it was about a month or maybe two before I was looking for volunteer activism, things I could do, because I just, I just thought, you know what, people need to know. Like, I just literally didn't know of the impact. And I, I hadn't, I had no idea the biomass of livestock on the planet. Um, but once I saw that graph, it was like, okay, I need to change. We need to change. So I was pretty instantly into activism. Uh, so I started by reaching out to like cubes and I actually organized a chapter. We were living in Italy at the time. So, uh, I organized the Verona chapter, which was crazy because my Italian is garbage like I mean if I can get by but having outreach conversations those poor people who came by like I was practicing my Italian on them while while asking them questions about like like open-ended questions about why they eat certain things but um yeah we pulled together a group there and held cubes like every week and then I left that because for a number of reasons um the organization itself kind of went in a direction I didn't agree with and then secondly, I just thought, you know, this isn't going to change anything. This, this, I mean, it, it does, it matters. It, like having conversations, I definitely talked to people who woke up and I think made some changes um, and we need to do that. But I thought, okay, what can I do at more of like a system level? Because clearly this is not enough. And I had been reading, I'd been obsessing lately um, 
well, not lately, but like in 2018, I'd guess midsummer, I became kind of obsessed with looking at the USDA website and seeing how subsidies worked in the US. We were still in Italy, but soon to move back to the US. And, um, and I was just horrified that we were, we were subsidizing all these, especially feed crops and encouraging farmers to deplete the soil, growing like monocropped corn and sorghum and um, soy just to feed to animals. And then on top of that, like the dairy margin protection programs, et cetera. There are a whole lot of uh, subsidy programs. Um, so I was on Reddit one day and I can't, well, I was up with allergies because of course the elimination diet and going plant-based did nothing for my allergies. They're still horrendous, which, you know, that's not, too bad. I was, I was really hoping. But. I was going to say not, not the good news story we were hoping for, but you no, know. no, all these people talk about how they had high cholesterol and heart problems. And then they went plant-based and four months later, they were totally healthy. And I'm like, yeah, it didn't solve my health issues. Um, I'm sure it's good for my health, but didn't solve any issues. Um, anyway, I, uh, I have such a Reddit problem. I actually, I'm not religious, but I gave it up for Lent one year because it was such a problem. Uh, but I was up at like 3 a.m. on Reddit because I couldn't sleep because of, my nose was so stuffy. And there was an AMA with this lobbyist and he was getting ripped to shred by the red, Redditor ripped to shreds by the Redditors, you know, like, here are the reason why the government's so messed up. And his, his responses were pretty cool and calm and um, reasonable. And I thought, that's what I need to do. I need to, I just need to pull together activists, raise money and hire some lobbyists. And so I started studying up on the lobbying industry. And um, I actually reached out to this lobbyist on the AMA and uh, applied to do a, a lobbying campaign. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So we raised $5,000 together and I went to DC and we actually lobbied for three weeks for a transition program for farmers. The idea being farmers who are stuck, say growing food or raising uh, livestock that's high greenhouse gas uh, emitting product in and of itself, why not give them an option, like a lifeline to transition to growing something that's more eco-friendly? Um, so that's kind of the idea of this transition program. So we started lobbying for it then. And since then, um, my co-founder and I, Connie Spence, and I founded Agriculture Fairness Alliance, which is a lobbying organization. And um, our original lobbyist, Billy, he said, you know what, you need to go find um, another, it's time for you to get another lobbyist. So we ended up hiring this lobbyist, Riley O'Connor, who's with us now. And he's very well connected in um, a lot of the ag districts in DC, like the Senate Ag Committee and the House Ag Committee. He has a lot of contacts there. So we've been working a lot with them. Um, so that's kind of how AFA grew. Sorry, that was a really random roundabout, um, just like brain dump of the origins of AFA, but that's kind of how it went. We need it all. We we need <laughs> we need the whole brain dump. It's it's great for context and uh, fantastic to learn a little bit about you personally as well. I feel like there's so much to to talk about with with the work you do. The 
the word subsidy, I think in the vegan movement is something that a lot of us are aware of. Like we might pass it off in conversation like, oh, it would be fantastic if we could redirect subsidies. You know, that would be, that would be fantastic without having me, myself included, like a deep knowledge of a, how much we're working with here in terms of a monetary value, what, what kind of money is getting distributed, uh, where it's going and, and how it's affecting, uh, you know, everything. So I'm not sure where to start here, but let's, let's go down the route of, you know, what are subsidies, bailouts, and, and how is it affecting uh, the market? Uh, and, and how is it affecting our veganism in terms of what we're advo- advocating for on, on a daily basis? Yeah, the subsidies are supports from the government that uh, favor particular industries and help them lower their costs um, for various reasons, sometimes for fruit, for security reasons. Um, But ultimately what it does is lower their costs so that they can ostensibly put out their product more cheaply, like for the consumers. Um, But it also... Um, yeah, it's just, it's an incentive to keep producing what they're producing. So the government by providing subsidies is choosing winners and losers in the marketplace, you could argue. Um, and then bailouts are like one-off payments that are typically for like disaster relief or like there's a market disruption globally that where a bailout will be paid to certain producers because an uh, export market suddenly goes away, for example. So on any given year, you usually have a mix of those two. Um, Up until about 2017, the most of the ag payments came through subsidies. So these are like uh, commodity programs where, um, Like if a corn grower fails to produce a particular yield uh, through the, or they fail to get command a particular price per acre, um, these like ARC PLC or the acronyms in the Title I Commodity Program, they'll get paid a difference so that they don't go out of business. So this is, this is like, uh, let's see how many commodities there are, roughly 30 commodities from rice to corn to sorghum, soybeans, sunflowers, wheats, etc. Um, so that's one subsidy. Uh, another is crop insurance where for-profit insurance companies are paid with our tax dollars um, a portion of the premiums that the farmers would otherwise pay, typically at 60%. So if a farmer needs to pay $200 a month for crop insurance subsidy, like it's a big farm, then um, what is that, 120? Wait, I should, I should do an easy math problem. $100 per month, $60 of that. Yeah, so 120 come from uh, the taxpayer. And then furthermore, when those insurance companies are like, hey, we're getting hit with a lot of uh, claims, we can't pay them all, the government will step in and pay those. So each of those programs is roughly five, $6 billion a year. 
Um, and then you have margin protection programs where dairy producers, if the costs of their inputs are high and the price they're getting in the market is low, then the government will step in and give the money and they can sign up for um, like premium versions of that. Um, and then there's bailouts. So uh, bailouts, we, we really tapped into a lot of bailout money uh, during the previous administration. Uh, first with the trade wars, which you may have heard about. And then secondly, with COVID relief, which obviously with COVID relief, people need relief. So I'm not saying don't help people <laughs> when there's a pandemic, but um, when you look at who got what, uh, the, the big recipients of those bailouts were predominantly feed producers and livestock producers, cattle, dairy, pig, mostly. That was on the order of $20 billion, $30 billion in 2020. So doubling up the subsidies with just bailouts. Got it. So on top of the subsidies, we're bailing out people to the tune of or companies to the tune of 20, 20 billion in, in 2020? Uh, actually, 2020, the subsidies were about 20 billion and the bailouts were about 30. So the total was Got around it. 53 billion. And that's just the federal level. Got it. Got it. So when, when we're affecting the market in this way, I know that, you know, one of the most common things we'll hear is, Oh, go and vote with your dollar. You know, you know this is yeah. the be- this is the best thing we can do as as plant based people, as vegans. Go and help out these companies by buying their product and increasing the demand. What you're what you're telling me here sounds like it brings everything out of balance. It, it's or it's it's not as it seems. I would say that subsidies mute the signals we send through our transactions at the checkout counter. Um, they somewhat undermine, but there's there's two sides to this. One is uh, the main problem is that the producers of the products we don't want to support aren't feeling our market signal. However, the producers of the products we do support absolutely detect that we are buying their pro- products. And if you look at GFI and PBFA data, you see that those industries are booming right now. And in fact, that's an area where we think we have a selling point, which I think I really want policymakers to understand is this is an opportunity for farmers. They can transition into the wild west golden age of a new market, which is where anybody, any, any proper capitalist wants to be in early on the action, not going into a dinosaur industry later and cost optimizing where everything's a commodity. So um, our transition program is the idea is, hey, it's not like telling uh, farmers to do something they don't want to do. This is like, hey, transition into providing inputs into a market that's booming right now. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, you're no longer emitting any GHGs. You're no longer putting uh, nitrates into the water supply and contributing to eutrophication. Like it's all good, good, good. Um, 
but the subsidies keep some of them stuck doing what they're doing. And perversely, it's some of the conservation subsidies that do. For example, a uh, dairy farmer might work with NRCS and a USDA department through the EQUIP program, which is Environmental Quality Incentives Program. And they may say, hey, um, you have 500 dairy cows, you're producing more manure than you can possibly dispose of on your land. Um, let us cost share with you the uh, installation of a methane digester. So they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. The farmer goes into debt for their half of the hundreds of thousands of dollars. They install a methane digester that doesn't handle the methane coming from the cow's uh, breathing. It comes from, it's just strictly the manure. So it's only half the equation. And so it's this very capital intense uh, project that only serves to keep that dairy producer stuck producing dairy because after you invest in your business, you're less mobile. You're, you're not gonna switch to growing hazelnuts for the fast growing hazelnut, like Elmhurst milked hazelnuts. You're gonna keep making dairy. Well, I mean, if you've been paying attention with Wisconsin dairy farmers are going out of business to the tune of like 10% a year. Uh, the, the milk market is in a glut, it's in surplus to the point where we're storing billions pounds of cheese in federal warehouses. Um, so while it's ostensibly a conservation measure, all it's doing is making farmers stay stuck in an industry that maybe they should be getting out of between the high GHG emissions and the fact that we're oversupplying dairy, per capita milk consumption has been dropping every year since the 70s. And uh, some farmers just want to transition. So wouldn't it be better to spend half a million dollars helping a farmer transition to uh, growing a food that is in harmony with his or her land versus doubling down on growing a food that obviously is so out of balance with their land that they have to engage the conservation service of the USDA to install elaborate equipment to deal with the imbalance. It's, it's kind of, um, while it's well-intentioned, it has a perverse effect of really uh, making small and mid-sized farmers even more stuck in these kind of dinosaur industries where we would like them to be agile and nimble and switch over and capital. I would rather small American farmers capitalize on getting in on the early growth of the plant-based food market than have huge mega agribusinesses be the ones who are doing that. And right now with current government policy, it's the big agribusinesses who by the way are collecting the subsidies and bailouts too. They're the ones who have the resources to adapt and react to the growing plant-based food market. Our, our partner farmers, two of which are in Wisconsin, one's in Pennsylvania, one's in Michigan, they, they're stuck. They are absolutely stuck on their heels with current government policy. That was going to be, yeah, my next question was when you say, you know, farmer, 
we might have this idea that it's it is the small medium farmer but you you've answered it it's it's basically imprisoning the smaller medium-sized farmer because they're not able to be as agile their funds that they have in reserve aren't big enough to to allow them to do that the people receiving the the grand share of the the subsidies by the sound of it are the ones who are the the giants yeah the 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 huge corporations and they what they're getting the best of both worlds they're able to dip their toe in the plant-based world whilst also using subsidies to prop up their dwindling dairy corporation like it seems extremely unfair yeah the way i look at it is the if the full externalized costs of the production of some of these products were borne by the producers instead of um, them receiving subsidies, they would be so expensive they would have to transition. But what they're doing is they have, you know, they have lobbyists and they affect policy at the federal level. And they are just buying time so that they can keep taking profits from the older uh, pollutive industries. Um, it's just like the fossil fuel industry. Like the writing was on the wall in the eighties. A lot of people got out of the fossil fuel industry, but then, so then like the price of coal dropped and then just the real, what's the word for people who are total jerks (laughs) without calling them total jerks. Like the people without, without any, um, consideration for our shared life on this planet went in and bought up like I think I read it was like a fifth of coal reserves in the U.S. well if the government had just bought those up we would be in a much different situation right now by the way but the people who went in they were the ones who started like putting up websites called um CO2 is green like we need more CO2 to get people to support coal all these shenanigans, um, all in an effort to just prolong the profits they can extract from a the production of a product that we know is driving us toward ecological collapse. Well, it's it's similar. Uh, it's a similar phenomenon where I'm not saying all farmers are this way, but um, some of these larger corporations if you just look at their lobbying strategy, it's clear they're just trying to prolong the profits regardless of the impact that that production is having on the, the public, on our, our little blue dot. In, in saying all of this, seeing what the small to mid-sized farmer is up against, how do Agriculture Fairness Alliance go about helping them, uh, helping them transition I'm sure it's multifaceted. You know, you've got dairy farmers, for example, who might have had a farm for, you know, generations. Generations, right? It's in their it's in their blood. It's in their families, yeah. and it, it must be a hard thing to give up. There's there's no doubt about that. I think we have to respect that. Um, but you know, being stuck is is not a good feeling. And when there's something that is possible, you know, that there is a possibility for these guys to transition. They have the land. Um, they might have some, you know, manufacturing equipment that can be transitioned. How do we, 
how do we help them do that? It, it sounds awfully difficult. You mentioned lobbying um, and, and the power it has. How, how are they going to be helped? Well, where AFA is focused is on convincing USDA uh, through either lobbying the administration or lobbying Congress, but our tactic is both, convincing the USDA to offer programs to mid-size and small farmers. So that's anyone bringing in up to a million dollars per year in revenue. Uh, giving them options to evaluate products they could transition to, and then helping them with financing that maybe quarter million dollars per year in financing for three years. Um, just as an example of like the size of a transition might be. The idea is, you know, if somebody is a dairy farmer and they say, oh, over my dead body, I'm going to do anything else. Well, fine, carry on buddy, like nobody's telling you, you have to transition, but the farmers we're working with, they are desperate to transition. So we have two farmers in Wisconsin who have dairy and they're, they're both saying that, you know, this is the last generation that's going to be dairy farming for a number of reasons. Um, one of him, one of them, bless his heart, <laughs> met him on Reddit too. <laughs> um, he's very tuned into the environmental impact of his operation. And he's very keen to transition to what is called more restorative agriculture. So um, he wants to transition his farm to hazelnuts, a hazelnut or orchard. Uh, right now he's using his 1200 acres and has to actually inject liquid manure into the land in order to dispose of the manure. He generates so much from his cows. And ironically, that land is just growing feed for the cattle that's making the manure. And then he has too much. Um, and he's just like, this is, this is not how, this is not in harmony with how the, the land should be. And um, so he wants to transition to more of like an agroforestry type an operation, like a, a forest, like a food forest. Uh, but you know, his, the, the current funding he gets just keeps him dairying. Um, and in fact, he wrote a letter to his rep that is on our website. If you go to afa.farm slash farmer letter, uh, or you can go to AF. Yeah, that, that's probably the best way to go. You can read what he wrote to his representative. And I mean, I couldn't have, it's, it, it just lays it all out right there. Uh, so our program that we're lobbying for, which you know, it's really a farmer mobility. It's an option. It's, it's for anybody who's feeling like, hey, maybe let's take a step back and reevaluate what we're doing and maybe we can do something better. And what it would do is enable a lot of farmers to just be absolute heroes because imagine you, you no longer have a herd of 600 dairy cows. Well, by EPA estimates, that's 200 tons of methane a year that he's producing. That's, that's a lot. If you use, if you look at the impact of that over 20 years, that's 87 times or 84 times more powerful than CO2 warming the earth. And all that warming happens in the first 10, 20 years. So these dairy farmers could be absolute heroes if they stop breeding more cows into existence and transition into like hazelnut farming. And I suppose that's the other 
the other part to what we were talking about, not only is not only are the subsidies, you know, hold propping up the businesses to, to allow them to continue the detriment to the environment, the impact to the environment is, is just continuing year on year, despite the shift in consumer choices. It's, it's not reflecting the current times. Right, right. A lot of us make our choices individually for what we eat based on a number of reasons. But I think a lot of people in our movement are choosing to eat like um, plant-based burgers, chickpea of the sea, lentil shepherd's pie, rather than the, the animal versions, because we don't want to be a part of the environmental destruction. We want to be part of living in harmony with our land but individual choice only goes so far. We really need to em empower the producers to shift to producing the foods that are low GHG as well. Um, so that's not, so the first step is giving them a path where they can make that shift and then eventually level the playing field and subsidies. So they're not favoring livestock to an outsized degree. I'm not saying um, only subsidized plants, but at least level the playing field. That'd be a nice foundation for, yeah. for, for where to begin. And, and what does the process of lobbying look like? Uh, Cause it, it sounds like over a number of decades, the animal agriculture industry has basically dominated that arena and they sound like they've got their ducks in a row. They, they're efficient. They know what they're doing. Where do we start? How do we start to, to begin it? our process as a movement guided by, uh, guided by your company? Uh, so lobbying is the relationship market. It's all about relationships. So there are a few components to that. One is who do you put into positions of power and decision-making? and who can influence them by talking to them. So step one is uh, I would encourage anybody in our movement to run for office. I know that, I mean, over the course of my lifetime, I have seen unending messaging saying, oh, the system's messed up. The system, you know, is broken. Like, don't even engage with it. It's all BS. You know what? If you run for office, <laughs> you can change the system. Our democracy and our um, elections are, are the most powerful way that we can bring our voice to changing the system. So I encourage anybody who's even had the notion of running for office to do so. Secondly, um, talk to your reps. You can go to their website and send a single email and say uh, what you want them to prioritize. Now, just tactically, I'll recommend start by complimenting them on something that you've appreciated they've done in the past. Stick to one topic when you say what you want them to care about. Don't give them a laundry list because they'll throw it in the bin. And, uh, and just thank them and do this every, you know, a couple times a year, send them things that you want them to focus on. You can even write to them and say, hey, I understand that farmers are like current USDA policy is keeping farmers stuck 
producing high GHG products, will you please ask the USDA to implement programs to help farmers on a voluntary basis transition to producing foods that are in and of themselves low GHG impact? Like just send the letter. I realize that you'll probably get a form letter back, but if enough people write those letters, even, even the most um, jaded politician, their staffers are gonna tabulate that and report that to them. And they need to know that they're what their voters care about because they want you to vote for them. That's like the number one thing. They just wanna get reelected into office, especially representatives every two years. Can you imagine having to apply for your job every two years among 750,000 people? I mean, I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine. But if you wanna do that, run for office. Um, <laughs> so that we can talk to you and propose our ideas and have you implement them. Um, second, and then thirdly, um, something that people can do is write letters to the editor. Find a article in your local newspaper. And uh, if it's talking about like um, soil carbon depletion or soil health, write a letter to the editor in response to whatever article you saw and propose some specific um, solution to whatever problem was identified, whether it's helping farmers be part of the solution by transitioning, whether it's leveling the playing field on subsidies, um, whatever's topical, write those letters to the article or letters to the editor and be sure to mention your representatives, your senators and your representative in the House of Representatives and even your state legislators um, by name and say, I call on them to do X, Y, Z. And what you're doing is you're offering a tool to the wider movement that people can source when they have conversations with whoever, maybe they're, they're going to a, a town council meeting and the topic is how the town can reduce its greenhouse gas input or output. Well, some other activists wrote a letter to the editor that's relevant. Well, they can enter that into evidence and, and even read your letter aloud. Who knows how it's gonna be used. The beautiful thing if you mention your representative and your senators is that AFA's lobbyists can take that letter to the editor and it's a calling card into those offices. So we recently had a case where uh, a volunteer, Alyssa wrote a letter to the editor in Southern Maryland and she listed her representatives. Well, Van Hollen is on the ag committee and we didn't have a relationship with his office before. And our, our uh, lobbyist was able to um, ask for a meeting just based off of that letter to the editor saying, this is a voter in your district. She wrote this letter. She's a member of this organization. Uh, we'd like to talk about the solutions we're proposing. So it's really powerful. So run for office, write to your rep, write a letter to the editor. You can go to your town councils, council meetings, listen to what they care about and consider testifying about what you care about back to them. Don't do that on your first meeting though. Go in and listen and uncover and see how the process works and then, then uh, present. There's a group called Factory, um, Factory Farming Awareness Coalition. They have a lot of good resources on how to do this. Uh, also plant-based advocates based out of Los Gatos. 
um, they've done a lot of lobbying at the local level. You can go onto their Facebook groups and ask about how to get engaged at your um, at your local city council. Also, um, um, cultivate empathy for all. They've done a lot of good work with Vision 2025 in Berkeley. Uh, just some examples. And then lastly, I think our next step with AFA, well, right now we're, we're building our lobbying team, but the next step will be to develop a PAC. So um, a PAC is where you can raise funds to uh, run campaigns for people. So as we identify people to run for office, um, we can actually raise funds to, to help them get into office. I'm really hoping that HR1 gets passed because that'll go a long way to putting public funding, uh, making public funding available for candidates versus requiring PACs to raise money for in, from individuals, which is part of the reason why we're in such a weird situation with our system right now. It's comforting to oh. know that there are ground root, uh, you know, grassroots things that we can do. You know, that's yeah. given the the amount of information we take on as we become more aware of yeah. of of the the problems we've got in our systems and the problems of the way we eat, what the problems of the way we travel, whatever it might be. It, it can get disheartening to hear it all. So to, to have actionable items, uh, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned uh, the kind of grassroots ones that we can, we can get involved in ourselves. And uh, you were about to say something there, Laura. Oh, and then I always forget, but obviously you can give $10 a month to Agriculture Fairness Alliance and 100% of your donations go to lobbying. Um, we're an all volunteer crew. We, we have some small donations, one-offs to handle, like paying for our Zoom account and paying for IT and stuff. Uh, but, uh, but member donations go to lobbying. So, um, so you, that's always available to you too. And that's easy. You just set up a $10 a month payment, set it and forget it. Beautiful. And, and you mentioned building a lobbyist group or you're building your lobbyists um, at AFA. Firstly, how many lobbyists do you have? And then what's your vision, you know, for what's your vision for, for what you're able to do with a, with a larger team of lobbyists? So there's this book called The Business of America is Lobbying by Lee Druckmann, I think is his name. And it's fascinating because it's sort of a data breakdown of the various levels of effectiveness of lobbying groups and um i think one of his major premises is that or one of his major themes is that corporations that start lobbying it's a virtuous cycle where they they lobby for some things or they do something defensively and they have a big win and all of a sudden they realize oh the return on investment here is like two thousand to one you don't win everything you advocate for, but when you do, you're showered with money. So corporations from the 50s until now have only increased their lobbying because of the ROI. So you have, it's dominated by for-profit corporations. And then the smaller group are like small interest groups. And as he makes his case, he analyzes different uh, corporations and different grassroots efforts and kind of comes at a, um, 
a level, he calls them platinum lobbying levels and others like that, where they have different effectiveness rates. And kind of the rule of thumb I, I walked away with was roughly a million dollars a year of a lobbying budget is where you start to really have uh, the kind of influence you want to have that's going to change system. Um, so we're not there yet, but that's where we're aiming for actually beyond that. So what we're looking at is, um, so right now we have one lobbyist and I have to say he's great. He sends us so much information that's actionable that we, we wouldn't have otherwise even been aware of. And he's talking with offices that um, I don't think we would have gotten into with just individual calls and grassroots efforts. It's just like opening doors. But we need more. Um, taking a step back, looking at the agriculture sector, most farm policy is dictated by what's called the Farm Bill. It's the Agriculture Improvement Act. And it's renewed, give or take, every five years. So you can figure about 2023, the next one will be passed. We're looking at that Farm Bill and we're thinking, okay, we really need 10 lobbyists going in like actively during 2022 and 2023 lobbying. So our goal is to employ five lobbyists by the end of this year, and that will get us in a good position to grow to where we need to be. But even if we have just two or three lobbyists with going into the farm bill, we're gonna be able to influence some big, some big programs within the farm bill. Um, there are, I think, 12 titles, and maybe we can be effective in a few of those. It's, I'm, I'm definitely looking at this from just how promising and how, and how important it all really is. You know, this aspect of veganism, uh, and it doesn't even have to be veganism, it's environmentalism. No, it's, it is. It's so much more than just one category. Uh, it's really our future <laughs> that we're that we're working towards here, and it's unfortunate that it's not done at a government level autonomously. It's it's unfortunate that we we have to put in so much work, even though it's so clear what's going on. But the way you've la laid it all out. It, it, it certainly gives me a, a hopeful, uh, you know, a hopeful idea of what the future can be, and that it's actually it's able to happen. You guys have laid it out um, pragmatically, and I can I can see that, and I'm I'm definitely buoyed oh, by your effort. Yeah, and you you our our lobbying is very much centered around environment, as it should be, as it should be. I'm. Sometimes you encounter people who, when they realize that you personally only eat plant-based, they, they make some assumptions about what your intentions are. And it's not my intention to um, convince anyone of an ethical argument, honestly. Like, that's their own personal journey. I'm happy to have that conversation. But uh, in terms of trying to get people to change, um, I think we really need to be looking at the impact that this industry has on all of us. And, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but 
I have kids and I'm, I'm terrified for the future. I'm heartbroken that I didn't do more earlier. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, no, um... I, I, I hear you on that. I hear you on that because you know what frustrates what I don't have kids personally, but what I do have younger cousins and Yeah. You don't have to have kids to understand, to want the world to be left better for the next generation. Totally agree. And what frustrates me is having conversations. I I work in the outdoor industry right now. It's it's new to me. I I definitely had this thought that the people uh, working within that community would be pairing their environmental, they, they see themselves as environmentalists. Let's put it that way. Right. When we're talking about action and pairing our food choices with that environmentalism, I'm, I'm always surprised at the, the answers that I receive. And, and seeing those people have families, they, they might have grandkids, kids. Yeah. And just the ignorance to the importance of something as simple as changing a meal a week, two meals a week. It's off the table with a lot of these people. And it, yeah. that, that really, it, it definitely annoys the hell out of me to, <laughs> to hear those yeah. answers because it's like, what future do you want for your kids, your grandkids? What, what role model are you hoping to be for them? You know, are you going to sit back and say, oh, I was aware of the information, but I didn't give it my best crack. And now, you know, now future generations, including the people I'm related to, are going to suffer the consequences. Or do you want to be able to say, look, I might have 50, 40, 30 years left on this earth. I'm going to give it my best shot. You know, I'm really going to give it a go. So. Yeah, that topic does kind of uh, bewilder me sometimes. Well, let's <clears throat> let's keep in mind that individual putting the burden of fixing the predicament we're in, putting the burden on individual choices isn't going to solve the problem. We yep. really need to change the system and change uh, the incentives so that the low greenhouse gas, the, the, the foods that are in and of themselves more in harmony with the land they're being produced on, where they're not producing nutrients going into the river, they're not producing methane, they're not producing extra CO2 and nitrous oxide, um, where those green plants, those, those foods that are, are restorative to the land that those are getting subsidies, that the subsidies move to them and make those even cheaper so that even junk food plant-based products, um, you could argue the relative merits of the, on the public health perspective, but personally I'm like, hey, who am I to tell people what, <laughs> like not to eat potato chips, right? <laughs> uh, you do you, but, um, but we can't put it on consumers to make those choices. We need to change the system so that the choices presented to them, the, the, the environmentally friendly options are the cheapest. 
Yeah. So that they just do. And that way you don't have to convince people. You don't have to even make them feel badly about the fact that they're taking part in, um, in choosing something that's, that's borrowing against uh, the next generation's future. You can just go, oh, look, this plant-based burger is $2 cheaper than the animal-based burger and let them make their choice. I mean, that's gonna have a far greater impact than um, convincing each individual person about the facts around their food choices. I'm not saying don't educate people. I think we absolutely need to because those people might run for office. Those people might write letters to the editor. Those people might contract contact their Congress, members of Congress. Um, so still do that. But we need to shift the system so that uh, the, the easy choice is the green choice. That's a fantastic reminder. I don't think making people feel bad about their choices is... Uh, what we want to do, you know, at our right. at our hearts, sometimes our frustrations boil over, uh, and I try and avoid that as as much as possible because it really doesn't uh, it doesn't help the cause uh, to yeah. to you know let the emotions boil over and and make someone feel bad for what they're currently doing. Um, given yeah, what you just mentioned uh, about about making that choice the obvious one. I suppose we're starting to see it happen with uh, the popularity and I suppose the price point dropping a little bit on things like Beyond Burgers. And I'm, I'm definitely hearing more and more conversations about people enjoying it, uh, trying it more regular, more, you know, on a regular basis, uh, which, is, which is promising. And you do see, you start to see the great effect that things like that can have. Yeah, I remember listening to the founder of Impossible Foods, and he was talking about his light bulb moment when he was at a climate conference, and they had been in seminars and presentations all day, maybe all week, where these scientists had analyzed the environmental impact of raising livestock. And then they would go out to lunch, and people would order steak and burgers, and he's like, if, if these extremely well-educated people on the subject are still choosing these foods, we can't just rely on education for people to change. We have to make, we need to put alternatives in front of them that are very easy to choose and are inexpensive to choose. Yep accessibility, price, and taste. I think that's the GFI kind of route. Uh, once yeah. those things are nailed, then the choice becomes uh, easy. It becomes simple and it, you know, it, it starts to positively impact uh, the, the environment and our future. And uh, if we have transition programs in place, then the farmers don't need to suffer as the consumers choose eco-friendly options, they can make money and thrive on that shift. I mean, that is what my biggest hope is that these farmers we're working with are able to transition so they make money for their families and they don't have to sell their farm to a huge corporation that's just gonna plant corn to feed livestock. Like, I want these, I want the American farmers to, to take part in this 
So this is why we're, we're opening our lobbying gambit with a program to help them transition. It's optional. It's just a lifeline for some. Um, it's just another option for, for farmers to consider. Um, whereas right now, all their options, if they take them, it's kind of a devil's bargain for some because it just further entrenches them in what they're already doing. Beautifully said, beautifully said. It's, uh, they are at the heart of this. They are the people that are just being screwed over by the current system, can't find a way out. And yeah, I too hope that they're able to transition. What are the conversations like right now with the small mid-sized farmer in America, the, the conversations you're having? You've obviously mentioned some of the positive ones where people are, you know, hoping to transition. They see the future. They're they're trying to get there. Uh, what are some of the the challenges, maybe, of of getting these guys on board? Uh, well, I wish Barb was on the the call because she's the person who has had the most success of reaching out to farmers, and um, she has all kinds of stories of the conversations she's had. Um, I've had a few too, obviously. Um, I think, so we're working with farmers of multiple ages. A couple are in their thirties. Uh, I think one is in his forties and the others are in their fifties. And uh, the younger ones, they're very eager to transition and just like, they wanna revamp their family operation. Everyone has been on their land for generations. They're, you know, they wanna keep their land. It's part of them, it's their identity. And I think that's, that's, that makes sense. Um, so some of them want to transition because they see the Luke. So one wants to transition because they see the lucrative opportunities in doing something that's in this growing industry. That's really the motivation there. The two in Wisconsin, it's a mix of things. Uh, it's both the volatility of the market that they're in right now and they want to be better environmental stewards um, and increase biodiversity, increase soil, um, soil, organic matter, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the fourth in Michigan, they, they're the ones who are the story of kind of getting hosed by engaging with the equip program and putting a lot of money into extraordinary means to deal with their actually it was the silage it was the feed that they were feeding their cows it wasn't the manure they had a problem with but it was leaching into the local creek so um, they took on debt they thought they were free and clear to retire in a few years and now they're um, they've spiraled downward she referred to that loan and the subsequent bad weather as the final nails in the coffin. So they're in really bad straits and they're, they were looking at retiring and they're nowhere near that. They're, they have to work off farm jobs right now to just get by. So these are the four farmers we're working with, all different situations. When we reach out to farmers, we've had all sorts of conversations. One that's memorable to me was a dairy farmer. I'm not gonna say the state she was in, but she, she was interesting because um, I reached out because her website was very inviting and I just felt like I would like this person. Um, 
and got her on the phone and we had a conversation. She really liked the idea of a transition program. She wanted to transition and install windmills on her farm because they have a lot of wind through there. The soils aren't particularly good in her area for doing any sort of crops. She had something like 50 or 60 uh, cows in her dairy herd. And she was at a point where she was crying every time she sent them off to the slaughterhouse because, you know, dairy cows at around four or five, six years, they're quote unquote spent. They're not producing the, what, 20,000 pounds of milk a year anymore. <clears throat> I think that's up to 24,000 pounds of milk a year now, um, nationally. So she wanted to keep her dairy cows as family and stop breeding them, but just keep them and then make money off of windmills. And um, she said it was really hard because the neighbors, the backlash among the neighbors to the idea of her putting windmills up was, um, it, she, it just was a, a stopper. She couldn't do it because she would have gotten so much hate. Um, and I got the feeling like in her community, there was a lot of um, resistance among the, the farming community to, to any change that would feel like it was, um, I don't know, any change that would feel like it destroyed the old way of doing things maybe. And ultimately she said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't work with you because um, I just can't risk my neighbors finding out that uh, I'm, I'm working with an organization pushing for programs that would transition, um, which kind of disappointed me because I really felt like a connection with her. I felt like she was um, a great spokesperson for what we wanted to do. But I think there's a, there's a lot of pressure uh, some of the farmers feel from the wider community. Not to say that the wider community isn't trying to solve these problems. The other farmer we're working with in another state, <clears throat> his nephew is in uh, is studying agriculture at college, and he was on one of the calls, and um, and he reminded me of actually a lobbyist we interviewed who we didn't end up hiring, but he told me about his nephew, who's um, also in college and working with the local farming community to come up so with solutions for climate change. So they're very, on one hand, they're very interested in being part of the solution and implementing the solutions and coming up with ideas and directing those solutions in a very progressive way. But on the other hand, there's, there's parts of the communities who are very distrustful of the government coming in and telling them what to do. So they don't really want programs to, to do that. I don't know. There's this whole mix of, of things. And, you know, when I, I'm listening to them tell their stories, it's like, okay, this is a very human relatable phenomenon, right? Like regardless of what group you're in. So those are just a couple of examples from my um, memory, but Barb would definitely have more more colorful stories to talk, tell you about conversations she's had with farmers. Um, in general, most farmers we talk to, they're supportive of the idea of a, a voluntary program being an option for them versus something being dictated to them, of course, which, I mean, we're not asking for that. So again, the normal human responses, right? 
being dictated to is something that we're not going to react well to having a clear path and a choice, different ball game, people being able to see uh, their future changing and being more promising in in such a number of ways, it's going to be a lot more uh, enticing uh, than, uh, than being told what to, what to do. Uh, You mentioned, you know, something about distrust of government uh, kind of segueing off that is the change in government helping at all in this in this world the the recent change in government you mean with the 2020 elections with the elections and trump departing and uh biden biden coming into power absolutely so uh the usda is now headed up by tom vilsack who um, he's a dairy farmer. He's definitely sympathetic with the livestock industry, which you know makes sense for an ag secretary. But I also think he's he's very keen on listening for ideas for solutions um, for climate change, which is a refreshing change since the last administration. Um, during the last administration, we saw reporting drop off from USDA. So we would look for like reports for the current year and we could only find them from 2016 because they were like, whatever, we're not gonna report on that. Um, Same with EPA. Uh, I'm hopeful that the estimates in the science, they're gonna be a little more realistic and use better numbers. But even if they don't, I think this administration, especially having the House, Senate and executive all under one party that is very interested in solving climate change as a top priority, I mean, that makes all the difference. Um, Our messaging has completely changed before even going into democratic offices, we couldn't make the whole argument about um, greenhouse gas emissions, about the environment, because they would have to deal with people from the other side saying, ah, this isn't really that big of a problem. Um, But now they can kind of uh, hang their hat on environmental reasons for passing legislation. So we're doubling down even more on that. And in terms of talking about this with, with people on the Republican side of the aisle, is, is that going to be important in the future? Is it, is it, can we rely on uh, the Democratic side to take this through or, or do we need people from both sides working on this? You know, there's an argument that resonates with both sides. That's the argument that we kind of lead with. That is, I mean, it's not, um, it's not imaginary. It's absolutely central to what we're pushing. And that's opportunities and options for American farmers. So we're looking at, so we had a legislation called At-Risk Farmer and Rancher Diversification Act. We're retooling it right now, actually with the Republican policy writer um, to, and we're probably going to rename it to something like American Farmer Opportunity Act or something like that, because it really is. It's just an opportunity to switch to doing something different and hopefully make even more money in the switch. Um, And that appeals to to both sides of the aisle. Um, 
on the ag committees, it doesn't matter what party they're from, they are fiercely protective of American farmers, no matter what that farmer is producing. Um, so that's that's messaging that appeals to to every single policy policymaker, and it's it's messaging that's truly coming from our hearts too. It's not like we're just saying it. Um, the last thing I want is for American farmers to go out of business and uh, be dominated by foreign-owned mega corporations. I mean, you look at Smithfield; that's WH Group; that's China. Not that I have anything against China, um, but you know, if you want American land owned by American citizens, WH Group isn't where you want to go to. And then there's JBS; that's from Brazil, and they they they're up to all kinds of kind of horrendous environmental shenanigans. Like the last thing we want is them taking over our farms from, from individual American families who want to keep their farms and their families. So, you know, that's central to what we're after and advocating for. 100%. Well, I, I think it could be a good place to, to land the conversation. It's, it's it's one I want to continue. It's it seems so integral in in how in how we really make change, real change, meaningful change, not only for you know the planet, but for for people, for for real people who are in the trenches doing the work. Uh, they're they're suffering right now. So to see them come out of that and have opportunity elsewhere would be amazing. Um, so in saying that, where can we find you? Where can we find you guys? How can we help? Uh, how can we stay engaged? Well, we have a website, agriculturefairnessalliance.org, but for short, you can just type in afa.farm, F-A-R-M. Uh, so you can join as a member there if you'd like, or you can read some of our articles where we've been breaking down the 2020 subsidies and we'll be breaking down the Q1 subsidies soon. Uh, we also have an Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter account. I would say if you want to see most of the information we're publishing, follow us on Instagram and on Reddit. That's where we kind of engage in, in the most sort of like informal dialogue with our followers and put out most of our um, material. Twitter is very much like politician facing. So we, we're very like buttoned up ties on suits on very like formal so we're not like twitter trolls or anything um so i would say follow us on instagram it's ag fairness alliance and same with on reddit our username is ag fairness alliance you can just follow us there um yeah we've been posting a lot of subsidy breakdowns and farmer quotations on our instagram account so something that would be really helpful is spreading our message to other influencers on those platforms. We have something called the Amplify Club where we'll send an email when we post something that we think is worth sharing, which is most stuff we post, but you know, sometimes you post something that's like, we're not gonna call out the army to amplify it. But when we do, uh, you can sign up there. It's just afa.farm slash Amplify Club. And you'll get the links to like our LinkedIn, our the Instagram post, the Facebook post, the Reddit post. Um, 
but I would really encourage a lot of your listeners to follow us on Instagram. And when you see a story come across your feed from Agriculture Fairness Alliance or Ag Fairness Alliance is our handle, um, please just share it in your story and, and share it with your, your wider crew and let them know that it's time to build a lobbying army in DC to shift the farm system so that incentives are right for a plant-based future that's gonna be more eco-friendly for everybody and be part of the solution that we need. Beautiful. I'm so happy we had you on today, Laura, and I appreciate um, Shreya, one of our listeners who's a volunteer for you reaching out and, and getting me in contact with you. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely would love to see some of our listeners go out there. All of our listeners go out there, check you guys out, share your content and, and don't forget to donate if you can, if that's something you're comfortable doing, uh, please do uh, make a donation, become a member, uh, make a reoccurring donation, uh, whatever is possible, I think would be extremely helpful. And I, yeah, I can't wait to see what you're able to do going towards that uh, that farm bill in in 2023. Yeah, shout out to Shreya for putting us in touch. Thank you, Shreya. And now I'm a an avid listener of yours. I listened to the last um, podcast you did with Vanessa, and I will be following up with her because I think um, our our paths absolutely should cross. Um, also shout out to my co-founder, Connie Spence. She's the one who's bringing up Liberation 360 right now. That's going to be the nonprofit. That's like the education arm and we'll touch on topics beyond agriculture. Um, and shout out to you, Matt, for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. I'd be, I'd be happy to have you back on uh, at any time, just drop me a message, drop me an email, and uh, we can we can easily organize that in this world of Zoom meetings. It's uh, it's <laughs> yes. super easy. Hopefully, one day in person, that would be that would be amazing. Uh, That'd but, be lovely. Yeah. Thanks again. I hope you have an awesome day. And um, yeah, we'll we'll stay in contact. Yep. Cheers, Laura. Cheers. That is all for today, folks. Thanks again for your support and taking the time to tune in every week. This episode would have not happened without the help of a listener recommendation. So a big shout out to Shreya for teeing this one up. We really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation today with Laura from Agriculture Fairness Alliance. Uh, The topic was a new one to me personally, and we had not shared it on the podcast before. So I hope there were some takeaways and some learnings from today's conversation. The work they're doing is super important, so please consider donating and becoming a member of this wonderful organization. It's really easy. I actually did it this morning before editing the podcast. You can find them at afa.farm on the World Wide Web and on Instagram at Ag Fairness Alliance, and that is all one word. If you enjoyed the show or any of our previous episodes, Please take a couple of minutes after we wrap up today to leave a short review. Uh, The reviews really do go a long way in helping us reach more people around the world. So thanks to those who have already done so. Uh, We greatly appreciate it. Can't wait to chat with you all next week, guys, for another episode. Keep it plant-based and thanks again for tuning in.